Hi, this is Fred Jeff Smith, pastor of Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. Shiloh is a traditional church with the timeless message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that we don't have something that will entice and intrigue you. We have a wonderful music ministry. We have wonderful children's ministries. We have a fabulous Christian education ministry. We're reaching out to you, inviting you to come and be a part of the Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church. We want you to come and check us out. You'll be glad that you did. We want to call your attention today to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Last time we were together, we were in chapter 13. I want to, re I want to remind you, and for those who are viewing uh, uh, on television, uh, I want to remind and or inform you. We're not doing an exegesis of a particular book. We're following the life of a particular person as that life is revealed in Scripture. And while the book bears the name of Samuel, Samuel does not appear in every chapter of First uh, Samuel. Uh, and so we're, we're skipping along to cover those areas where Samuel uh, is mentioned. Uh, he's mentioned in First Samuel chapter 13, and the next time that we hear him mentioned is in chapter 15. And so that's going to be our focus today, chapter 15 of First Samuel. Uh, in order for us to understand what's going on, uh, it's important for me to catch you up on what we're skipping over, okay? So, between last week and this week, what has happened? When we left you last week, uh, Saul had failed to be obedient to God regarding the offering of sacrifices that was found in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. And he was scolded for that disobedience by Samuel. Uh, Samuel uh, had warned Saul that uh, his kingdom was going to come to an end, that there would be no successor within his family line of his monarchy. In fact, what Samuel says to Saul is that God is already looking for your replacement. Uh, that notwithstanding, uh, what happens with, Sam, with Saul is that even though he had uh, failed God, even though he had disappointed God, God gave him the victory. When you look at uh, the remainder of 1 Samuel chapter 13 on into 1 Samuel chapter 14, what you see is that uh, Saul and his oldest son, Jonathan, uh, proved to be very successful military tacticians. Uh, first, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 through 15, we're told about Jonathan and his armor bearer. That's two people uh, defeating 20 Philistines in an initial battle. Uh, 
And then God threw the Philistines into confusion. For when you read 1 Samuel 14, 20 through 23, it says that when Saul uh, and his meager army of some 600 approached the Philistine camp, what he finds is that they're actually warring against one another. They're killing one another. At the same time that that's going on, the Israelite military defectors, those who had run uh, previously, came back to fight with Saul and Jonathan. And they came back in such large numbers that, that his army swelled from 600 to 10,000. So with that 10,000-man uh, army, Saul proceeds to fight against the Philistines, and he fights very successfully. But then in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 24 through 35, we're told that even though Saul is winning, he, he, he makes a, what the Scripture calls a foolish uh, declaration that he wants to hold people to. Turn, turn quickly to 1 Samuel chapter 14 and look at verse 24. And I'm reading from the message version. Saul did something really foolish that day. He addressed the army, a curse on the man who eats anything before evening, before I've wreaked vengeance on my enemies. None of them ate a thing all day. There were honeycombs here and there in the fields, but no one so much as put a finger in the honey to taste it, for the soldiers to a man feared the curse. But Jonathan hadn't heard his father put the army under oath. He stuck the tip of his staff into some honey and ate it. Refreshed, his eyes lit up with renewed vigor. A soldier spoke up. Your father has put the army under solemn oath, saying, A curse on the man who eats anything before evening. No wonder the soldiers are drooping. Jonathan said, My father has imperiled the country. Just look how quickly my energy has returned since I ate a little of this honey. It would have been a lot better, believe me, if the soldiers had eaten their fill of whatever they took from the enemy. Who knows how much worse we could have whipped them. Now, I read that whole thing because it harkens back to something that happened. Do you remember when we were studying uh, judges not so very long ago and we, we got to one of the judges named Jephthah? Y'all remember Jephthah? And, and, and Jephthah uh, was uh, a judge over one of the tribes of Israel, and uh, he took out his men in battle against the enemy. And without any charge from God, without any divine intonation at all, Jephthah decides, after he has won the battle, to make a, 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 a declaration before God that he is going to sacrifice to God the first thing that comes out of his tent when he comes home. And when he comes home, his daughter is the first one that comes out of the tent. And, 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 and he says, well, I have to finish the vow. Now, as we discovered, there was a way out of the vow. He could have 
repented from the vow. He could have retracted the vow and spared the daughter's life. There was a provision within the law to allow him to do that, but he didn't do that, and his daughter's life was spared. Saul does exactly the same thing. Nobody asked Saul to do this. He's already winning. If you're winning, why you got to do crazy stuff? On top of the winning that you're already doing, nobody's going to eat anything until I get all of my vengeance against the people. Nobody asked you to do that. And in fact, the text even says that what he does is a foolish thing. I just want to put a pin in that because that's really not what we're here to talk about. But stop making crazy uh, uh, bargains with God. It's not necessary. It's really not necessary. Some of us find ourselves in trouble. We find ourselves in desperate situations and we go to the Lord in prayer and we make crazy statements to God. God, if you get me out of this, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And you know when you're saying it, you ain't going to do it. You know you lying when you say it. God doesn't ask for any of that. All God asks for is that you sincerely commit yourself to him. Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second is very close to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Not only do all the laws and the prophets hang on that, that's all that God asks for. If you want to make God a promise, make him a promise that you're going to love him a little bit more today than you did yesterday. And that that love is going to be made manifest in how we treat one another. Other than that, God doesn't require anything from you. Lord, I'm broke. I can't pay my bills. This is my promise to you, Lord. You pay my bills this month, I'm going to go to church every Sunday in 2020. You lying. By the time you get to the second Sunday in February, you're going to be like, did I really say every Sunday? Does that mean that I really have to go? Can't I just watch it on live stream? Wouldn't that be the same as going? God doesn't require extravagant promises. All God requires is that you love him and love your fellow man. Saul makes this ridiculous declaration, and Jonathan did not know about it, and the text itself calls it a foolish declaration. That notwithstanding, uh, 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 after winning, after prevailing, uh, the, 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 the soldiers of Israel start to uh, eat. They, they, their energy has been completely depleted. And so they grab whatever piece of livestock that they could. The text says they grab sheep, they grab uh, oxen, they grab, they grab calves, whatever they could. They began to butcher it and to eat it 
But the way that they were eating it was contrary to the command of God, contrary to the law. They were eating uh, the livestock without first draining the blood. And so a priest uh, comes to Saul and he says uh, to him that what they're doing is against the command of God and you need to stop that. And so Saul erects an altar and at the altar he tells the people to come and bring their livestock and to properly prepare the livestock for slaughter and then to eat uh, the livestock in a proper fashion. Then Saul is of a mind uh, to chase and complete the slaughter of the Philistines. But again, a priest intervenes and says, let's consult God about it. And so they went through the process of consulting God. They used what's described in the text as Urim and Thummim, and uh, uh, God does not answer. And so Saul seeks to determine why God is not answering. And they begin to cast lots. And what is discovered is, and this is why I went through the whole thing about Jonathan and eating uh, the honey. What's discovered is that Jonathan had eaten uh, the honey uh, after Saul had made this declaration that anyone who eats uh, anything until the vengeance is uh, taken care of uh, has broken the law and would be cursed, would be put to death. And so Saul is ready to put his son Jonathan to death because Jonathan took a taste of honey. Again, turn back to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14. Start with verse 43. Saul confronted Jonathan. What did you do? Tell me. Jonathan said, I licked a bit of honey off the tip of the staff I was carrying. That's it. And for that, I'm to die? Saul said, yes, Jonathan, most certainly will die. It's out of my hands. I can't go against God. Can I? Well, first of all, that's a ridiculous thing. Because God didn't ask him to do nothing in the first place. I can't, it's not, it's not I can't go against God. It's I can't go back on my word. It's I can't embarrass myself by, by backing down from what I said would happen. But listen to what happens. The soldiers rose up. Jonathan died. Never. He just carried out this stunning salvation victory for Israel. As surely as God lives, not a hair on his head is going to be harmed. Why, he's been working hand in hand with God all day. The soldiers rescued Jonathan, and he didn't die. Okay? So, Saul is so... Uh, uh, caught up in this frenzy of doing what he wants, that he's willing even to kill his own son in order to accomplish it. But the soldiers intervene, and Jonathan's life is spared. It's kind of a harbinger of things that ought to come, because Saul goes through very elaborate means to kill David. Uh, once David rises to a place of prominence, Saul tries on several occasions to kill David. And what it shows is that Saul is crazy already. You know, uh, 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 you know some, some people say that, that Saul becomes crazy later. But Saul is crazy right now. And the crazy comes out. 
From this point, we learn that Saul enjoyed a series of impressive victories against Israel's enemies. But when he turned his attention to the Amalekites, it becomes clear that Saul vacillates in his obedience to God, which ultimately led to the demise of his monarchy. Now let's get into 1 Samuel chapter 15. Took me 17 minutes to get to 1 Samuel chapter 15. That's my fault. Samuel said to Saul, God sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now listen again to what God says. This is the God of the angel armies speaking. I'm about to get even with Amalek for ambushing Israel when Israel came up out of Egypt. Here's what you are to do. Go to war against Amalek. Put everything connected with Amalek under a holy ban and no exceptions. This is to be total destruction. Men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys, the works. Saul called the army together at Tulane and prepared them to go to war. 200 companies of infantry from Israel and another 10 companies from Judah. Saul marched to Amalek City and hid in the canyon. Then Saul got word to the Kenites, get out of here while you can. Evacuate the city right now or you'll get lumped in with the Amalekites. I'm warning you because you showed real kindness to the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. And they did. The Kenites evacuated the place. Then Saul went after Amalek from the canyon all the way to Shur near the Egyptian border. He captured Agag, king of Amalek, alive. Everyone else was killed under the terms of the holy ban. Saul and the army made an exception. Saul and the army made an exception for Agag. Do you see that? Saul and the army made an exception for Agag and for the choice sheep and cattle. They didn't include them under the terms of the holy ban. But all the rest, which nobody wanted anyway, they destroyed as decreed by the holy man. Go back to verse 2. I'm about to get even with Amalek for ambushing Israel when Israel came up out of Egypt. Here's what you are to do. Go to war against Amalek. Put everything connected with Amalek under a holy ban. And no exceptions. This is to be total destruction. Men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys, the works. Now, you can sit here as, as I'm sure you're doing in here and as I'm sure those who are viewing are doing at home. And you can talk about this holy man and how a righteous and good God would say put children and infants to death. That's not the object of this discussion. We can have that discussion another time. We can talk about the morality. Let, let, let me just say this about that. 
you're going to have a hard time employing 21st century values to a pre-Christ situation. There's no way to resolve that. And I'm not going to try to resolve it because that's not my issue. It can be our issue another day. You want to come back to it? Tell me. Red, we want to come back and talk about that again. That ain't what we're going to talk about today. What we are going to talk about today is God said kill everybody. God said no exceptions. And Saul made an exception. He made an exception of the king, and he made an exception of the prize livestock that the, Amal the Amalekites had. Let's start with this. Saul's disobedience to God does not stem from compassion. Somebody's going to say, well, Saul showed compassion. No, he killed children. He killed infants. That's what the text says. He killed children. He killed infants. He killed women. So if he was showing compassion, where's the compassion for women and children and infants? This is not a matter of compassion. Saul disobeys because he sees value for Saul in doing what he's doing. There are at least two ways in which sparing the king of the Amalekites and sparing the livestock were of value to Saul. Both of them have to do with ego and power. If he spares the king of the Amalekites, who does the king of the Amalekites become the chief servant of? Saul. So that every time the king of the Amalekites is brought into the presence of Saul, he is made to remember that Saul defeated him, humiliated him, destroyed his people, destroyed his army. He is made. Sometimes killing folk ain't the worst thing you can do. Sometimes there's a hurt that goes beyond killing folk. For example, go back to Judges again. Do you remember when, when, when Samson finally told Delilah what the true source of, of his strength was, and, and we've told you before, it wasn't just the cutting of the hair. He broke every aspect of the Nazarite vow. He had already uh, drunk wine. Uh, he had already touched the carcass of a dead animal. The cutting of his hair was simply the final straw in, in the Nazarite vow that he had broken. Do you remember when, 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 when the Philistines came in and they captured Samson? They didn't kill him. They plucked out his eyes and they bound him and forced him to serve at their whim. 
forced him to be at their beck and call, forced him to entertain them. Because the, the, the final scene of Samson, he's in an arena, and, and he's tied up, and he's being made sport of, and everybody in the arena is laughing at mighty Samson being brought down, being humiliated in the way that he was. They found greater pleasure, not in killing Samson, but in humiliating Samson. I think Saul was of the same mind. I, I think for Saul, it's an ego thing. I captured the king of the Amalekites. I have him at my beckoning call. He's under my control. He's under my authority. And he has to live with that for the rest of his life. This ain't got nothing to do with compassion. Second thing is, by sparing the choice livestock to ultimately make a sacrifice with, he's making a sacrifice with that which does not cost him anything. You remember your Sunday school lesson a couple of weeks ago when, when, when we, we came from First Chronicles and David uh, had said that he was going to build uh, a temple to the Lord and uh, Nathan told him, go ahead, and then God told Nathan, you go back and tell him, no, I, I, I don't want that. And, and, and then we, we, we skip over to where David goes and he buys a threshing floor and he buys a field and, and the person that he's buying the field from, Ahasuerus, I believe is, is his name, he says, well, you ain't got to buy it. I'll give it to you. You can, you can have everything that you need. And David says, no, I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to pay the full price. And he makes a statement. He says, I will not sacrifice to God that which cost me nothing. And yet with Saul, what we see here in sparing the choice livestock is Saul is going to use this livestock to make sacrifices to God. And who gets to keep all of their choice livestock? Saul. This is the height of exploitation. And here I go getting on my soapbox again. We have to be careful about exploiting. America is a nation that exploits. America is a nation that sacrifices things that does not cost those who offer the sacrifices anything. Companies fold. Thousands are put out of work. And those who sit in boardrooms and made the decisions that led to the companies folding get buyout packages, retirement packages in the tens of millions or perhaps even hundreds of millions of dollars. Other folk are, are forced to use food stamps if they can get food stamps. We have to be careful about the sin of exploitation. Well, that's just the system. Well, the system is wrong. And I'm not crazy and I'm not naive. I know the system ain't going nowhere. 
But that does not mean that we have to utilize the system in such a way that is abusive towards other people. We can find a compassionate path to follow within the system that exists. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean that it's always the right thing to do. And, 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 and sometimes we need to step up, speak up, stand up, and say, even though I could do, I won't do. And when you do that, know who you're modeling after. You're modeling after Jesus. I see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. I, I, I see him as, as he's talking to his father. And, and, and I, I know the way the gospel writers put it, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I like to think Jesus says something else. I don't need to be dying. I ain't done nothing wrong. All them folk I'm dying for, all of them deserve to die. I haven't done anything wrong. And it ain't just a quick death either. It's a painful, humiliating death. You need to get me out of this. This ain't, this ain't what I signed up for. But it's exactly what he signed up for. He had a right. Pilate says, don't you know I have authority over you? And Jesus laughs. Say, what authority do you think you got? He said, if I call, again, the Fred translation, if I snap my finger, legions of angels will descend upon this place and take all y'all out and carry me back. Don't, don't, don't talk to me about power. You ain't got no power. You don't know what real power is. He could have done that, but he chose not to. And I, for one, am grateful that he chose the path that he chose. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that it's always the right thing to do. Saul doesn't disobey out of a sense of compassion. Saul disobeys out of a sense of how it can uh, elevate him. Second thing I want you to see is that Saul's disobedience is committed by his partial obedience. Saul does most of what God instructs him to do. And he, he, he he employs the rationale that says, well, if I did 85, 85 is a passing grade. I didn't have to get 100. All I had to do was get 85%. And if I, 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 I killed everybody else, if I spare the king, and if I spare the sacrifices still, the balance falls far more heavily on having done what God said do. They're not doing. How many of us are guilty of rationalizing with Jesus? 
Lord, how many times should I forgive my neighbor? Seven, surely, ought to be enough. That was Peter trying to rationalize. Okay, so how many of y'all are rationalize? You ain't got to raise your hand. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious. Go, go over it in your own mind. Who is it that you won't forgive? Who is it who hurt you so badly that you refuse to even think about forgiving? Who is it that you will pardon but will never put back in a place where they can hurt you again? That, that's y'all who say, I'm going to forgive you, but I ain't going to never forget. I ain't going to never give you the chance to hurt me again. Jesus tells a parable about a son who took his father's money, threw it all away, and comes home with nothing, comes home dirty and bare and half naked and says, all I want is for you to let me stay somewhere on the estate. All I want is for you to treat me as one of the hired servants. I don't deserve to be called your son anymore. But the father, Jesus says, embraces him fully as his son. Knows what he did. Knows that he threw his stuff away. Knows that he hurt him. Knows that he embarrassed him. Knows that he humiliated him. And he takes him back in any way. And when the older son calls him on it and says, this boy of yours, won't even call him his brother. This boy of yours threw away all your stuff on prostitutes. I wonder how he knew they were prostitutes, but, but th th threw it all away on prostitutes and on, and on riotous living, and you take him back? And he says to him, this son of mine, I had to take him back. I had to bring him back in. Everything I have belongs to you. I'm not taking anything from you to take care of him. But I can't not take him back. Let me ask you, who is it that, 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 that you can't not take back? The answer is everybody. How you doing with that? Some of us feel like, okay, well, you know, I'm doing the best that I can. God knows my, the weakest thing, one of the weakest things we say, God knows my heart. He understands. You telling me what Jesus did? Well, I ain't Jesus. No, you're not. But Jesus said, be holy as your father is holy. Jesus said, be perfect, that is, be whole, be complete, as your Father is perfect, is whole, is complete. Jesus says, as I have loved you, so should you love one another. 85% won't do. Did we used to sing a song? Lord, I'm trying to make 100. 99 and a half. Won't do. I don't know how many of y'all took that to heart. But that, that ought to be the goal. That ought to be what we're striving for. Partial obedience is no obedience at all. That's like a half-truth. 
Do you know what a half-truth is? A lie. So the second thing I want you to see is that Saul's disobedience is committed by his partial obedience. Third thing I want you to see is that his disobedience is religious in nature and not spiritual in nature. Saul says, we're going we're gonna to save this livestock so that we can offer sacrifices to God, so that we can keep the tenets of our religion. But again, to sacrifice that which costs you nothing is not a real sacrifice. He uses the, 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 the posture of religion. He uses the framework of religion in order to defend what he has done. Religious framework has nothing to do with spirituality. Religious framework says that we get baptized by immersion, that, that, that we go into the pool and we go down and we come back up. But if there has been no spiritual transformation, you go down dirty, you come up wet and dirty because there's been no change. Religion says that we take of bread and of wine that is symbolic of his broken body and his shed blood. But even scripture warns. Paul says, be careful how you do that. He says, don't do it if you're harboring ill will towards one another. He says that you should do it advisedly, reverently, discreetly, and in the fear of God. If you are taking the Lord's Supper and you're still harboring anger and malice and jealousy and envy and revenge towards your neighbor, then you're just taking a snack in the middle of worship. Do you understand the point I'm making? That, that there is a framework of religion and there is true spirituality. And most of us comfort ourselves with the framework of religion and don't do the extra work of true spirituality. The framework of religion means nothing if there has not been a conversion in your heart. Pharisees ask Jesus, why, why, why don't your disciples follow the, the tradition of ritual washing before they eat? And Jesus says, because it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of him. It's what's already inside him that comes out that makes him unclean. Many of us could learn from that. Saul stands on the framework of religion, but there is no spirituality in Saul's life. Number four, Saul's disobedience is cooperative. What do I mean by that? 
he gets everybody else involved in his disobedience. One of the things that I've learned both from scripture and from life is that folk who are doing wrong want to get other folk to do wrong with them. As if somehow adding to the number of folk who do wrong minimizes the wrong that we're doing. Didn't I tell you don't go around the corner? Well, Wayne and Brian went around the corner. Means absolutely nothing. At least it didn't in my house. If Wayne and Brian jump off a bridge, you gonna jump off a bridge with them? We were doing that when we were four and five years old. And now we're 70 and 75 years old and we're still doing the same thing. I wasn't the only one who thought that way. Other folk thought the same way. Okay, so, that, so 10 of y'all were wrong instead of just one of y'all being wrong. That makes it better. Employing others in your wrong does not minimize the wrong. Saul had a clear command, kill everybody. Kill everything. No exceptions. And here's the other thing about that. You can employ as many folk in it as you want. You the king. Which means that you're the one who gives the final word. Which means that if everybody around you says, says we're going to do this, and you say, no, we're not going to do it, you know what? Then they're not going to do it. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I, I'm always talking about... <clears throat> the President of the United States. Uh, employing others in our wrong does not remove from us the responsibility to do what is right. So what happens as a result of this? Then God spoke to Samuel. I'm sorry, verse, verse 10. Then God spoke to Samuel. I'm sorry I ever made Saul king. He's turned his back on me. He refuses to do what I tell him. Samuel was angry when he heard this. He prayed his anger and disappointment all through the night. He got up early in the morning to confront Saul, but was told Saul's gone. He went to Carmel to set up a victory monument in his own honor and then was headed for Gilgal. By the time Samuel caught up with him, Saul had just finished an act of worship, having used a Malachite plunder for the burnt offerings sacrificed to God. See what I mean? As Samuel came close, Saul called out, God's blessings on you. I accomplished God's plan to the letter. Now he's lying. Samuel said, so what's this I'm hearing? This bleeding, bleeding of sheep, this mooing of cattle. Only some Amalekite loot, said Saul. The soldiers saved back a few. Who, who, who saved? Who saved? 
The soldiers saved back a few of the choice cattle and sheep to offer up in sacrifice to God. But everything else we destroyed under the holy man. Enough, interrupted Samuel. Let me tell you what God told me last night. Saul said, go ahead. Tell me. And Samuel told him, when you started out in this, you were nothing and you knew it. Then God put you at the head of Israel, made you king over Israel. Then God sent you off to do a job for him, ordering you, go and put those sinners, the Amalekites, under a holy ban. Go to war against them until you have totally wiped them out. Why did you grab all... So why did you not obey God? Why did you grab all this loot? Why with God's eyes on you all the time did you brazenly carry out this evil? The very next statement is an indication of, of, of Saul's problem. Saul defended himself. Let me share something with you. When you're wrong, just say, I'm wrong. One of the things that everybody loves about Psalm 51 is that in Psalm 51, David makes no excuses. David did wrong. David was called out on his wrong. And David acknowledged his wrong. Have mercy on me, oh God, according to your loving kindness, according to your tender mercy, blot out my transgression against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. We love Psalm 51 because David owns up to what he did. What does Saul say? What you talking about? Y'all remember different strokes? Y'all remember little Arnold? What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> what you talking about? I did obey God. I did the job God set for me. I brought in King Agag and destroyed the Amalekites under the terms of the holy man. So the soldiers saved back a few choice sheep and cattle from the holy man for sacrifice to God at Gilgal. What's wrong with that? What's wrong? I'll answer for you. What's wrong is, is ain't what God told you to do. That's what's wrong. You don't get to debate with God. When God tells you to do something. Now, let's be clear. There are certain things that God leaves to our latitude. For example, we talk all the time about love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. It is open to our spiritual interpretation what love is. Sometimes love is helping somebody. Sometimes love is withholding help from somebody because somebody has abused the help 
that you have given, and they're using it as a crutch to keep from standing up on their own two feet. Anybody in here who's had a child, or certainly if you've had more than one child, you don't always whip, and you don't always not whip, but you always try to do the most loving thing. So love is, is something that is open to our latitude. God doesn't tell us explicitly what love looks like in every situation. We rely upon the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and upon spiritual discernment to determine what the most loving thing is to do in this particular situation. But when God says, kill everybody, every man, every woman, every child, when God says, kill all the livestock, and when God says, there are no exceptions, then what's open to your interpretation off of that? What's left for you to determine on your own? So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that is that you did not obey God. And more than that, you're justifying, you're rationalizing the fact that you did not obey God. And that in and of itself is an indicator that Saul has reached a place where he's no longer hearing God. And when you substitute your judgment for God's commands, then you have reached a place where you are no longer hearing God. And there are consequences for that choice. What does Samuel say? Do you think all God wants are sacrifices? Empty rituals just for show? He wants you to listen to him. Plain listening is the thing. Not staging a lavish religious production. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you. Jesus. See, Jesus like the Pentecostals. Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Not doing what God tells you is far worse than fooling around in the occult. Getting self-important around God is far worse than making deals with your dead ancestors. Because you said no to God's command, he says no to your kingship. Obedience is better than sacrifice. This is, this, if you don't get anything else out of, out of this time that we have spent together, get this. Obedience is still better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than having a perfect attendance record at church. Obedience is better than giving 10% back to God. They ain't going to put me out of the preacher's union because I said that either. Obedience is the key. Do what God 
says, do. Because anything less than that, you have inserted, you have substituted your judgment for God's judgment. God does not ask you to agree with him. God asks you to obey him. God certainly does not invite debate with him. God asks you to obey him. And where we fail to obey, there are consequences. I want you to see one other thing, and, 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 and we're about to go for 2019. Ain't that nice? I want you to see something else. Saul has gotten to the place where Samuel's rebuke doesn't mean anything to him anymore. In chapter 13, when Samuel rebuked him, he was all apologetic and he was all humble and, and he recognized that he had did wrong and, and he did what we often do. He made the promise, I ain't gonna do it no more. But by the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul is, is at the place where he's like, you know, old man, you need to go and sit down somewhere. You need to leave me alone. How do you know that? Because when Saul finally acknowledges that he had done wrong, what he says on the end of it is, so what? And I'm going to leave you with this, especially y'all who watch me by TV. Stop saying so what to God. There, there is an attitude that is prevalent today, especially among young people. Yeah, I did it. So what? Yeah, I said it. Might not have been the right thing to say. So what? Stop trying to guilt me. That's the problem with the church. Church always trying to make you feel guilty. I got news for you. You ought to feel guilty. Let me say, looking at the camera, you ought to feel guilty. Because when you do wrong, you ought to feel guilty about the wrong that you have done. Turn in your Bibles for one second to John chapter, see the 15 or 16. John chapter 16. This is Jesus talking. Starting with verse 4, key verses are verses 8 through 11. I didn't tell you this earlier because I was with you every day, but now I'm on my way to the one who sent me. Not one of you has asked, where are you going? Instead, the longer I've talked, the sadder you've become. So let me say it again, this truth. It's better for you that I leave. If I don't leave, the friend won't come. But if I go, I'll send him to you. This is what I want to get to. When he comes, he'll expose the error of the godless world's view of sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
He'll show them that their refusal to believe in me is their basic sin, that righteousness comes from above where I am with the Father, out of their sight and control, that judgment takes place as the Father of this godless world is brought to trial and convicted. What's my point? Jesus says that the work of the Holy Spirit is to make you feel guilty. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict you in the wrong that you have done. So I'm sick of folks saying, I don't like it when y'all try to make me feel guilty. If you're wrong, feel guilty. If you're wrong, feel some shame. Because if you never feel shame, you'll just keep on doing what you've been doing. And I'm sick of churches that tell folk you don't need to feel guilty. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. If you do things that are contrary to the will of God, if you are refusing to love, if you are refusing to serve, if you are refusing to forgive, you are wrong. And if the church don't tell you, who will? And I'm sick of churches that act like doddering grandparents. That's all right, baby. It's okay. My grandmother used to hit me in the back of the head and tell me, stop acting like that. And she wouldn't warn me either. I'd be walking and she'd just. That's what the church needs to do. I know y'all don't like, I know y'all don't like that. You put them in timeout all you want to. Timeout ain't helping. You need to hit somebody in the back of the head. And you need to let them know that it's wrong. And you need to feel guilty about the wrong that you have.